Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now hi this is edward october for octoberpodvhs.com here to tell you what people are saying about our true crime podcast. A thread store in Arizona says, too much dribble and slang. These ladies obviously enjoy their own humor and sound high. Hey, at least they called you ladies. Benny from Idaho says, your topics are so appealing, but a three-person pod is difficult enough to follow without banter. Um, our true crime podcast only has two people wait 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 wait. where's the other 100 five-star reviews can somebody give me the five-star reviews okay here we go much better luscious lee says stand up five stars you girls are funny af i especially love the me and mrs jones rendition you sneak into the recording cherry g 107 says i struggle finding a new podcast and so far i've been hooked to you guys podcast keep up the good work thumbs up thumbs up smiley face our true crime podcast, two girls, one story, and lots of bad renditions of songs you love. Available on your favorite podcatcher. Go binge it today. All right, before we get rocking and rolling, I do have to thank some new Patreon subscribers. First one being Katie. She is the $10 a month pledge and starts getting Skype calls here pretty soon, which I already messaged her and scheduled that stuff. I actually knew her. She's in the Facebook group, so that's super easy. Speaking of the Facebook group, if you'd like to join, type in Mysterious Circumstances Podcast, hit the group button, bam, there you are. Just make sure you answer the damn questions or you ain't going to get in. It's pretty simple, all right? Uh, same thing if you invite people in. Say, hey, listen to a couple damn episodes, answer the questions, you're going to get in. It's not a big deal. Uh, second of all, uh, my other Patreon subscriber is, and the only reason I'm going to say his last name is because he's a buddy of mine, I've worked with him for years and years, good old Eddie Groff, fucking love it, man, so thank you for becoming a Patreon subscriber, and anything else I can think of, no, merchandise, oh yeah, I never really advertise my merchandise, but if you want to go to mcpodcast.threadless.com, I have a shitload of shirts and everything else under the sun. Just know that I put a lot of random sayings on t-shirts and shit like that. So don't be absolutely appalled by my sense of humor. All right. But there are some really fucking cool t-shirts there. I actually have some, uh, some Doc Holiday uh, shirts there too. Those are, those are the biggest sellers to be honest with you. So, uh, yeah, go check that out if you want. You know, usually I would crack my beer right about now. But you guys are a step behind, because I already cracked my beer. I got it a couple sips down. So while you're listening to the intro here, why don't you go ahead and crack your beer and uh, enjoy the show. As soon as he walked in and down into the hallway, out pops Roy, puts a gun against his head and blows his brains out. 
only a fraction of his murders had ever been solved. Roy bragged about 150 individuals, and I would say we're somewhere between 150 to 200 is probably an accurate number. I think Roy was extremely efficient and vicious. There was no need to do this. This was just, uh, how would you say, it? vicious evilness. What Henry Ford was to automobile industry, Roy was to killing. He streamlined it, he organized it, and he killed with efficiency. In the 1970s, DeMeo embarked, unchecked, on a murder spree. But when Roy killed you, your body was not found. His victims may have numbered as many as 200 people. He had no respect for human life. He had no respect for anybody except himself. If you looked up the word evil in the dictionary, his picture would be there. All right, there are a few things that I need to bring up from part one that I am, I, I feel like I'm, you know, I feel obligated to mention it. By me stating these things, I'm not justifying any actions that Roy DeMeo might have participated in, anything that he might have participated in. For that matter, I'm not trying to justify anything. I'm not trying to make him out to be a better guy. So when you send your hate mail for me saying what I'm about to say, then I'm probably going to email you back and tell you to go fuck yourself, all right? First of all, uh, my friend Cammie, she uh, she has another, she has a podcast called Into the Smoke, and uh, she messaged me as soon as she heard it, after she fact-checked me on some things, which was which was awesome, <laughs> you know? But uh, she, she's, she's like, well, she's like, I fact-check you, but I, uh, I learned some things, you were right. So I was like, all right, cool. But anyway... Roy DeMeo, when I said that he enjoyed killing, I took a little bit of a liberty there. For Roy DeMeo, I personally think, and this is what Cammie was texting me about and stuff like that, and I was thinking about it before she even said that, so I'm glad she actually messaged me because I, I, I do feel obligated to bring it up. I don't think that he particularly enjoyed it. Killing was a business for him. It was about money. Uh, that was the main thing about it. Uh, the reason I said that he enjoyed it so much was because of what Dominic Montiglio said after he turned uh, into a federal witness when he said that, uh, you know, the, the crew was depressed that, you know, if they didn't kill, you know, one, two or three guys a week, you know, they would all be depressed. He never specifically said that about Roy DeMeo. So I can't really say that Roy DeMeo personally enjoyed killing. He was extremely good at it. He was very, very proficient. He was pretty fucking epic from what you've heard from part one and what you're about to hear in part two. And he was quoted as saying that it got easier every time that he did it. And it didn't bother him as much. And, you know, all the, you know, the the feelings and the guilt and all that shit went away. But as for Roy DeMeo himself, I can't really say that he enjoyed it. Uh, it was more of a business for him. It was about money. It was about being a part of the Gambino family. So there is that. The other thing that I do have to state is that I said a word that really I was. This is one of the few episodes that I actually went back and, and listened to. Uh, after I had uh, put it out, usually I don't do that. After editing, I just put it out and it's eh, whatever, you know, it's out in the airwaves. 
But I did listen to this episode because it actually interests me that much. I wanted to see, you know, how it all came together. And, uh, you know, I said that he was, he was making all this porn that he was selling. I said the word making, and that was wrong because Roy DeMeo was not involved in making any kind of, you know, taboo porn. You know, when I mentioned the, the, you know, possibly child sex or possibly bestiality. All I know is that it was illegal, hardcore porn, you know, is illegal by New York standards, you know, whatever the case might have been back in the, in the seventies or whatever. He was not making it. And I know this does not justify any of his actions. And I'm not trying to make it any less of an issue because it's fucking what's wrong is wrong. Okay. But he was not making it. He was selling it and distributing it. Because it was about making money for him. He didn't care what it was because it was making him money. No, that does not make it any better. All right. But I do have to say that because I, as you guys know, I am about accuracy, especially when it comes to figures like this who are historically relevant or <laughs> historically relevant. You know, I try to be as accurate as I can, and it was not accurate when I said that he was making this stuff, because he wasn't. He was distributing it. He was selling it. Yes, it's just as bad. I understand that. But when it comes to him selling it compared to him making it, I have to be accurate. He was not making it. So I, that that did have to be stated, okay? So now we can continue on with the show. So by mid-1979, after Roy DeMeo gets made, you know, he's already made... Uh, Castellano starts taking a little bit of a liking to him, and as I had mentioned previously in part one, you know, he really didn't like Roy DeMeo very much. He thought he was a loose cannon. He thought, you know, he thought of street guys as, as lower, you know what I'm saying? But he starts taking a liking to him because of his murdering skills and his reputation. Now, Roy DeMeo and the DeMeo crew had a reputation that preceded them. Like, nobody wanted to fuck with these guys, alright? Castellano knew that as long as he had the DeMeo crew, like, this was his own little personal army, right? Like, nobody would fuck with him, okay? Because he has a little personal army of fucking psychotic killers right here. And DeMeo, he starts to expand his business activities, mostly his auto theft operation, and it ends up becoming the largest in New York City's history. Now, the, the FBI dubbed their operation the Empire Boulevard Operation, and this consisted of hundreds of stolen cars being shipped from posts in New, Newark, New Jersey, to Iran, Iraq, Puerto Rico. They were sold on the black market. Uh, there was about 5,000 cars per week, and they were sold at about $5,000 per car. Now, DeMeo, he put together a group of uh, five partners in the operation. Uh, all of all of them earned right around $30,000 a week each in a profit. But at this point, when it starts becoming, you know, when he starts becoming literally a fucking international criminal, the feds start kind of catching on, okay? Now, aside from his active partners, he had he did have other associates with the mob and crew members that actually performed, you know, all the stealing of cars, you know, in New York, one of which was Vito Arena. 
Now, Vito Arena was a longtime car thief. He was an armed robber. Uh, he began working with DeMeo in 1978 after murdering his old partner. And now, Arena would become closely involved with the DeMeo crew by the end of the 70s, right around 79. His, his car theft th scheme was almost stopped by a legitimate car dealer. And this legitimate car dealer threatened to inform the police but he was murdered along with an acquaintance of his before they could provide any kind of uh, information to any kind of law enforcement out there. So, you know, problem solved, right? In late 1979, DeMeo and Nino Gaggi become involved in a conflict with James Eppolito and James Eppolito Jr., they were two made Gambino members in Gaggi's crew. They were the paternal uncle and cousin of a corrupt former NYPD detective by the name of Louis Epolito, whose father, Ralph, was a made member of the Gambino family. So if you're looking at this, Louis Epolito is an NYPD detective. His father, his uncle, and his cousin are all made members of the Gambino family. Take that as you will. Now, if you want to go on a little side subject, you know, you get tired after this episode, you're like, I got to know about about the mafia cops. Look up Louis Epolito, and I believe the other guy, guy's last name was Caracappa. Uh, I could be mistaken there. I can't remember exactly, but, I, but, but these two guys literally are are famous for being, like, known as mafia cops. Like, they were dirty as fuck, all right? So, what happens is, James Eppolito met up with Paul Castellano, and he accused DeMeo and Gaggi of drug dealing, which they were doing, and this carried the penalty of death, all right, under Castellano or even the Gambino family as a whole. Now, Castellano was very, very close with Nino Gaggi, so he cited with Nino Gaggi and cited against Eppolito. He told Eppolito he's lying. He's like, there's no way my guy Gaggi is doing any of this shit. Nobody in his crew or any anybody underneath him is doing this shit either. So he goes back and he tells Nino Gaggi, and this is Paul Castellano, he tells Nino Gaggi, he's like, you have permission to do whatever you need to do. This is what this guy is saying about you. He came to me and said this. I give you full permission to take care of the situation. So on October 1st, 1979, Gaggi and DeMeo shot both of them to death in Eppolito Jr.'s car on the way to the Gemini Lounge, and they were supposedly heading there for a meeting. Now, a witness driving by, right as the shots were fired, you know, they had parked the car on the side of the road, the shots were fired, there's a witness driving by, he sees it, all right? Well, this witness just happens to be an off-duty cop who's driving a cab for extra money. So the cop goes to the scene, you know, he like goes back, and Gaji's walking away. Now, him and DeMeo had split up right after the shooting. You know, he, uh, DeMeo split, he was gone. He, uh, he left the scene. So he goes up, and him, this off-duty cop, and Nino Gaji get out, get in a fucking shootout, man. And straight up, like, middle of the day, from what I understand, I'm not 100% sure, but I'm pretty sure this was the middle of the fucking day. And this cop and Nino Gaggi get into a shootout, right? So Nino Gaggi gets shot in the fucking neck, 
and he ends up living, but he gets arrested. Now, like I said, DeMeo had split up like right after the murder, so he was not arrested, he was not identified, you know, by the cop or anything like that, so he was pretty much out of the picture. Well, Nino Gaji, he ends up getting charged for murder and the attempted murder of a police officer, but Nino Gaji did a little bit of jury tampering and he was only convicted of assault and given a 5 to 15 year sentence in a federal prison. Now in March 1980, just uh, you know, 3 4 months later, DeMeo would murder the witness shortly after Gaji's sentencing. It's hard to ignore a public shootout between a cop and a fucking gangster. So the cops at this point like all the other cops who are, you know, have been watching him and investigating him, you know, they start connecting the dots between Nino Gaggi and the DeMeo crew and Paul Castellano and the Gambino family. They start putting together all these, you know, connections. Now, while Nino Gaggi is in, in prison, DeMeo becomes acting captain of Gaggi's crew. In 1981, Gaji's sentence was overturned on an appeal, and he was released from prison. Gaji, what he did was he bribed a juror to make false claims of government misconduct during the trial. That's how powerful these fucking guys were, man. I shit you not. Nino Gaji kills two guys in a fucking parked car, him and DeMeo. DeMeo splits. Gaji gets caught at the scene almost damn near witnessed, like the murder was pretty much witnessed by a fucking off-duty cop. He goes to catch Gaji. They get into a fucking shootout in the middle of the street. Gaji gets shot in the neck. Dude gets sentenced to 5 to 15 years for, yeah, because he tampered with the jury. And then in 1980 fucking 1, his sentence gets appealed. Because he tampered with the fucking, he told the fucking juries, he's like, nah, just tell them the government, uh, you know, they had some misconduct and stuff like that during the trial. This dude literally did like a year and a half, like, or like a year in prison for that shit. That's how powerful these fucking guys were. Keep that in mind, alright? Now, during the initial stages of the early 1980s, federal and state task force start targeting the DeMeo crew, and a, there's a plan by authorities to excavate sections of the dump to locate remains of victims uh, at, you know, a little bit earlier on, and this plan was aborted when it was deemed too costly and unlikely to locate any meaningful evidence. The landfill, which was uh, opposite the Starrett City apartment complex on Pennsylvania Avenue, which was in a heavily African-American East New York section of Brooklyn across the Belt Parkway. It was shut down in 1985. It was capped over and pretty much like the fact that it was even a landfill before that is totally gone. It's, it's, it's Parkland now. Like it's totally gone. Now, through 1979 and 1980, the Empire Boulevard operation continues to grow, all right? In January of 1980, police become suspicious of one storage building in Brooklyn. The The group, the DeMeo crew, had uh, began keeping its cars in another building. So, the second building, which is like the dumbest shit in the world, second building is right next door to a police station, 
So a few months later, in April of 1980, a federal customs inspector inspecting containers at a pier looking at cars heading for Kuwait saw a car with a trunk lock missing. Now, this is a sign of a stolen car back then. Now, he calls in backup to check all these cars. 76 of these cars were stolen and seized by the government. And this is when it becomes officially an international case. This makes Roy DeMeo an international criminal. And it doesn't even phase him. DeMeo and the crew just keep on going, right? So a couple months later in the summer of 1980, there's a major investigation that starts uh, with the Newark branch of the FBI. Now, the FBI had been surveillancing the, the warehouse and some of the men who were unloading vehicles there and had shortly, you know, right soon after that, they obtained a search warrant. Now, in August of 1980, Henry Borelli and Freddie DeNome, they get busted for the stolen cars in Newark which happened, you know, just about like six, seven months before that. And in May of 1981, Henry Borelli and Freddie DeNome were arrested for their roles in the operation, but there was not enough evidence to arrest any other of the crew members or any of the partners. Now, DeMeo, you know, obviously got word of this, and he orders Borelli and DeNome to plead guilty to the charges because he's hoping that, you know, that'll end the investigation, you know, by the FBI or any kind of law enforcement for that matter. And Borelli and DeNome end up getting sentenced each to five years. In December of 1981, the case gets turned over to the district attorney. And the district attorney's office starts an investigation into the DeMeo crew. So in early 1982, the FBI puts together a task force for auto crime. It is led by prosecutor Walter Mack, and he collects, he gets a group of guys that are federal, state, and city investigators, and they eventually start investigating the huge number of missing and murdered persons who were linked to Roy DeMeo, or who had last been seen entering the Gemini Lounge, and they start building a case against Gaggi and DeMeo, right? So on June 4th, 1982, off-duty cop spots Vito Arena, who I had mentioned previously. He was an associate. He was working with uh, Roy DeMeo with the with the car with the car theft ring. Now he was actually wanted for you know stealing fucking cars, and the cop arrested him. Arena was also linked to a bunch of armed robberies. Vito Arena knows that he's absolutely fucked, and he knows that if he doesn't talk and get the protection of you know, being a witness, he's gonna fucking, he's gonna get killed. Like, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. He's gonna get taken out. So he starts talking, and he gives up all the information, all right? This is the first time somebody has literally sits down with officials. You know, there were, I believe there were, there were two people. There was like a, like an upper level detective, and maybe like a prosecutor or something like that, and him sitting in this room, and he starts talking and he doesn't stop for a week and a half. He starts telling him where all the bodies are, who killed who, how they cut the bodies up, how they disposed of them. Starts talking everything about Roy DeMeo. And to prove it, he tells them where to find a body of a guy named Joe Scorny. And uh, he's like, yeah, you can find him uh, in a cement barrel at the bottom of this lake. 
So the officials go to the, you know, they go drag the lake. Bam. They find a cement barrel. The dude's, uh, you know, skeletal remains are in there. Uh, you know, he still had his wallet and his ID on him. Everything. And according to uh, Capesci, you know, who was the author of The Murder Machine, he was one of the authors, him and Gene Mustaine. According to Capesci, uh, he actually had his dentist card, uh, this Joe Scorney did, had his dentist card in his wallet. So they were able to make the identification of the body within like an hour or something like that. It was crazy. Just to elaborate on this a little bit, I did find a really, really cool article, and it was when Vito Arena was in court testifying about a, a bunch of stuff. I can't remember where it was published, but it was written by Larry Elkin, and it was published on November 4th, 1985. And it says, quote, If you remember the time that Ayatollah took the hostages in Iran, Roy was a little upset. He said it might affect the operation. Now, this is Vito Arena, you know, recounting about, you know, the stolen cars with Iran and all this shit. He's like, trade with Iran was disrupted after the taking of the American hostages. You know, this had the support of Iranian leader, you know, Ayatollah Ruhollah Khamenei. I think is how you say his name. Fuck, I don't know. Now, Iran was dropped as a destination, and cars were shipped instead to its neighbor on the Persian Gulf, which was Kuwait. Now, this is all from Marina, because he knew the whole operation. The stolen car operation in New York just totally continued, like it didn't even phase him. But in 1979, he says, a ring acquired, the, the car theft ring acquired a certain tool, a very special, specific tool made by a supplier in California that allowed thieves to defeat anti-theft ignition locks being installed on expensive cars. And he goes on to say that DeMeo told members of the group, quote, never let that thing out of your possession. He didn't want anybody else in the neighborhood or even in New York City to get that tool that we had, end quote. I, like I said, it's, it's kind of like, I don't want to say it's off topic, but it was seriously interesting just to prove how international and how sophisticated this, this theft ring really was, okay? So when Paul Castellano finds out that Vito Arena has literally spilled everything, he requests a sit down with Roy DeMeo. And Castellano, basically, he didn't want to be implicated in anything. That was his main goal of this sit-down. Now, Roy DeMeo thinks that he's, he really doesn't think much of it, and he just kind of blows off the boss. Like, And I don't mean that in, obviously, the literal sense. But he just blows off the meeting. He's like, ah, you know, I ain't worried about it. I ain't going to meet with him, blah, blah, blah. And this pisses Paul Castellano off really bad. And he gets... Super mad, and he issues a hit on Roy DeMeo. Now, it's around this time that an FBI bug in the home of Gambino family associate Angelo Ruggiero, it's either Ruggiero or Ruggiero, I'm not 100% sure, uh, picked up a conversation between Ruggiero and Gene Gotti, who is the brother of John Gotti. Now, in the conversation, it is discussed that Paul Castellano had put out a hit on Roy DeMeo, but was having difficulty finding someone willing to do the job. Gene Gotti mentions that his brother John was wary of taking the contract because 
DeMeo had, quote, an army of killers around him, end quote. It is also mentioned in the same recorded conversation. At the time, John had killed fewer than 10 people while DeMeo had killed at least 38. Now let this sink in for a second. Paul Castellano wants a hit out on DeMeo. John Gotti himself would not take the hit. He would not take the contract because... He was a smart guy, like like John Gotti was not a stupid guy, he was a smart guy, and he's like, I'm not taking that contract, because this dude literally has a crew of fucking psychopaths, that if somebody kills Roy DeMeo, they are going to fucking kill everything, and probably dismember them, and nobody's ever going to find any body parts. He was smart enough to do that. And, this, and another fact, you know, that we have to look at here too, is it's common knowledge at this point in the Gambino family that Roy DeMeo's killed like a 40 people. Okay. That's all. That's the people that they know about. Nobody wanted to fucking kill Roy DeMeo because they were scared of the DeMeo crew. Like that's insane. You know what I'm saying? Now, according to, uh, you know, Sammy, the bull Gravano, who ended up being one of the most famous turncoats in history and mob history, the uh, contract was eventually given to Frank DeSico, but DeSico and his crew could not get DeMeo either. DeSico allegedly handed the job to DeMeo's own men. Now, when some of the NYPD detectives find out about this, some of the guys that are, have been watching him, now it's, it's their obligation, whether you're a criminal or not, when they get information like this, it's their job to inform that person. So they send a guy named Joe Wendling, uh, who's a cop, to meet with DeMeo at the Gemini Lounge to offer him a deal. And they wanted to see if DeMeo would turn, because this dude, DeMeo could have sank the entire Gambino family, because DeMeo himself was involved in so many fucking murders. And these, like I said, this is just the ones that they knew about, that he could literally just bring the boss down, you know what I mean, so they send this cop, and like I said, uh, if you remember from part one, like, like, the mafia had a lot of rules, like, you were not allowed to, to, uh, you know, fuck with law enforcement, you were not allowed to fuck with the press, you couldn't, you know, mess with civilians who were outside of the family, who were not associates in any, any way, shape, or form with that, you know, with the mafia, so Joe Wendling goes to the Gemini Lounge and he offers him a deal. And here's how this conversation went down. This is in the words of Joe Wendling because uh, I saw him in an interview and it's really, really interesting. Joe Wendling walks in and he, and he goes to offer him a deal. And Roy says, quote, you can take me down. You guys, you're old timers. Why do you want to get involved in it? A million dollars, Swiss bank account wife's name, give me the former, and go live like a king, end quote. Where Joe Wendling says back to him, quote, I'd sooner take you out of the trunk of your car, but come with us and I'll save your life, end quote. Roy says, quote, I'm a good soldier, I'm in the mob, and when they call me, I'll go like a good soldier, end quote. In perfect, in all honesty, right now, just reading that last line by by Roy DeMeo, 
what he says. I'm a good soldier. I'm in the mob. And when they call me, I'll go like a good soldier. That is how dedicated he was to this life. And to be honest with you, it, it, it makes me, like, I got chills all over me. Like, it makes me think of his older brother. Like, if you remember, his, his older brother died in Korea. And it just, I don't know why, you know, the way he, that he says it, his whole train of thought, it kind of, you know, brings me back, you know, to his older brother and just how dedicated he was to the Gambino family. Like, if he knew he was going to die, he was going to go. And he was going to die like a good soldier. But with this, the case starts building up, okay? And they're all about to be indicted. You know, a trial date is approaching. You know, informants out on the street are saying that, you know, in, you know, in his last days, DeMeo is seen walking, walking around wearing a leather jacket, you know, where he is concealing a sawed-off shotgun underneath his jacket. Because this dude fucking knows that his days are numbered. Now on January 10th, 1983, Roy DeMeo leaves his home. He says he'll be back for his daughter's birthday party. And Roy DeMeo didn't miss things like this. Now like I, you know, I'd previously said in part one, his son Albert was very vocal about he was honestly like a doting father. He was a very good father. He was never violent at home. He was always there for family dinners. He was there every, you know, for, for everything that the kids had going on. Just an amazing father. So he goes to leave. And he goes over to crew member Patty Testa's house, Patrick Testa. He goes for a meeting with his, with his crew. And he sits down at a table and he's waiting for his coffee. At which time, Anthony Center and Joey Testa come around the corner, and they kill him. They shot him seven times in the head, and his hand actually had a hole in it. And it's suspected from him putting his hands up in like a, a defense manner, and it didn't matter. He, he wound up with seven bullets in his head. Now, ten days later, on January 20th, he was found in the trunk of his own car, which was abandoned in Varuna Boat Club in Brooklyn. He was frozen solid in the fetal position, with a chandelier on top of him, which was also frozen to his body. Now, Anthony Gaggi was suspected by law enforcement of being the one who personally killed DeMeo, as we come to find out that that more than likely was not true. Um, on his son's birthday, Albert DeMeo's birthday, him and his uncle go to identify the body. Now, Albert also wrote that in his, in Roy's final days, he was extremely paranoid. He knew that he would be killed very, very soon. Like he knew it was coming. And Roy DeMeo, he says that Roy DeMeo considered faking his own death and leaving the country, actually. And, uh, Albert DeMeo later, found Roy's personal belongings, such as his watch, his wallet, uh, a ring in a study room, along with a Catholic pamphlet, which, uh, you know, he would never leave those, those, you know, at home when he would go to leave. So, you know, it's suspected that when he did go to leave, he knew he probably wasn't coming back. Now, according to uh, an article written for CosaNostraNews.com, 
Now, this is uh, basically a message that an anonymous person in law enforcement had sent to the website regarding Roy DeMeo's body being found. And it says, quote, Roy was offered a deal. When Roy was killed, he was dumped in the trunk of his Cadillac. There was a microphone leading from the back seat to the trunk of his car. The tape recorder and the tape was gone when we got there. What does that tell you? The word on the street was Joey Testa whacked him because Joey took over Roy's loan shark operation. End quote. Now, the, like I said, this is a former detective uh, who's saying that he believed Roy was informed of Castellano's contract and had agreed to turn informant. Now, Capesci, um, the author of Murder Machine, he wrote that Roy had grown exceedingly paranoid and had taken to tape recording his own conversations. Capesci never wrote that Roy had flipped or that Roy was making tapes for anyone but himself. He's just saying that he was literally that paranoid that he was tape recording his own conversations. And uh, Roy DeMeo's son Albert also wrote that in his final days, DeMeo was paranoid. And that was, you know, one of the very few points that both books do agree on. Because, uh, like I had mentioned in part one, Roy DeMeo's son Albert had written a book called uh, For the Sins of My Father, which is is an amazing book. And it gives a really interesting perspective on uh, Roy DeMeo. According to Philip Carlo's 2008 biography of Anthony Gaspipe Casso, DeMeo was killed at Patrick Testa's East Flatbush home by Joseph Testa and Anthony Center following an agreement with Casso, who was given the contract by Gotti and DeSico after they were unable to kill DeMeo during the fall of 1982. Now, in April 1984... Colombo crime family soldier Ralph Scopo was overheard explaining to an associate that DeMeo had been killed by his own family because they merely suspected that he would not be able to stand up to legal charges that resulted from his stolen car ring. The motive, as suggested by Scopo, was widely accepted by law enforcement and other sources. Another reason was that DeMeo was attracting too much attention to the FBI. To be honest with you, I'm more partial to believe that he was just attracting way too much attention. Now, in Philip Carlo's 2009 book, The Iceman, Confessions of a Mafia Contract Killer, Carlo reported that serial killer and mafia hitman Richard Kuklinski, known as the Iceman, was the lone gunman who killed Roy DeMeo while riding in DeMeo's car together. Kuklinski, who had begun taking contract killing work from DeMeo after establishing they had a beneficial criminal relationship, Richard Kuklinski, the Iceman, had been humiliated publicly by DeMeo on a number of occasions, and he sought personal revenge. Now think about this for a second. We all know the Iceman. We all know Richard Kuklinski. That's nothing new. And if you don't know who this guy is, literally, there's probably a hundred fucking podcasts who have done an episode on this guy. Okay, go listen to one of them. He writes that uh, Kuklinski had his first meeting with DeMeo and his men. The DeMeo crew beat the shit out of Richard Kuklinski, the Iceman, 
while collecting late payments he had owed to mob members in the porn business. DeMeo had thought that, quote, he took the beating like a man, end quote, and soon they became business associates, and DeMeo was giving Richard Kuklinski some of his mob contracts to uh, carry out. He was giving him hits and stuff like that, paying him. And uh, on another occasion, Carlo writes, uh, During a meeting with DeMeo's Gemini Lounge, for reasons unknown, a smirking DeMeo pulled a cocked Uzi machine gun on Kuklinski during a lunch with him and asked him if, quote, he wanted to die today, end quote. The beating over the late payments was the original humiliation which sent Kuklinski on the road to eventually killing DeMeo. The Uzi incident further pissed Kuklinski off. Now in prison interviews, Kuklinski indicated he was the sole killer of Roy DeMeo. I personally don't really believe that. Uh, everybody wanted the claim to fame to killing Roy DeMeo. As we know, Richard Kuklinski is a total fucking sociopath and a psychopath. Uh, it would not surprise me at all if he took credit for this killing and and honestly like didn't have anything to do with it i do think that i mean it's it's a great motive like the ice man himself literally was humiliated by roy fucking DeMeo. you know what i'm saying but i don't think he carried it out i gotta take a minute to thank this episode's sponsor which is care of Care-of is a subscription service that delivers vitamins and supplements customized to your specific health needs. You take a short quiz online, answer questions about your diet, your lifestyle, fitness, and health goals, and Care-of puts together a personalized plan just for you. Give yourself support this season with a boost, whether you're looking for energy, better sleep to maintain stress, or something else to help you feel your healthiest. The online quiz is super easy, too. You answer easy questions like how much sleep you are getting. Uh, are you looking for more energy? Do you need something to help support weight management or healthy hair, skin, and nails? It gets really, really personalized, which is a good thing because all of this is centered around you. It can be really hard to know like what vitamins or supplements you should be taking, but Care-of makes it easy to find out what you specifically need to be your healthiest. Depending on your personalized Care-of plan, you'll get daily vitamin packs and or protein powder sent right to your door. It's so customized the packets even say your name on them. You can modify your subscription at any time when your needs or preferences change, which is a good thing because as humans, we're always evolving. You know, as you start taking them, your preferences are definitely going to change. And Care-of makes sure that uh, what you're putting into your body comes from the best sources backed by honest guidance and transparency all available to you on their website. There are also vegan and vegetarian supplement options available to match your dietary needs and to ensure you're getting the nutrients you need for those specific diets as well. I went ahead and did this. I took the online quiz. It's super easy. It really doesn't take that much time. And bam, the day and age of technology. You literally take an online quiz and bam, you get them sent right to your door. And the cool thing is, is you can check out Care-of's website for tips on how to compost the packs as well. Like I said, I took some of these. They definitely helped me out. They make me feel a lot better, a lot more, you know, energetic. I'm a dad. I have three podcasts. These do definitely help me in my daily routine. I can honestly say that. 
Now, what I'm going to offer you is 25% off your first care of order. And you go to takecareof.com and enter MC podcast as a promo code. And like I said, it's that simple. Really can't hurt you to try anything new. You know what I mean? They, they really try to specify this around your lifestyle and your needs. So like I said, T-A-K-E-C-A-R-E-O-F.com. MC Podcast is the promo code. Get 25% off your first order. So after Roy's death, what happens to the rest of the DeMeo crew? Crazy fuckers. They all get rounded up. The whole case turns against Nino Gaji. And how this all goes down is that fucking shower and bathtub that they would hang the bodies upside down in to drain the blood... NYPD, FBI, they start grabbing, like, all this shit is stuck in the drains. Like, uh, Capeshi goes on to say, you know, he's like, you know, once, once there's blood in the drains, you can go in there and find that shit. So they start linking them to a shitload of more killings, okay? And the whole case turns against Nino Gaggi. Now, what happens to Henry Borelli? 1986, Henry Borelli was sentenced to life in prison and a concurrent sentence of 150 years for 15 counts of auto theft. In sentencing Borelli, Judge Duffy stated, quote, you have been convicted of being what is generally called a contract killer. Henry Borelli, you profess Roman Catholicism. I would suggest that what you should do is beg God for forgiveness, end quote. Judge Duffy recommended that Borelli never receive parole. Although Borelli successfully appealed the life sentence, the 150-year sentence for auto theft was upheld. As of July 2008, Borelli is serving his sentence in United States Penitentiary in Hazleton, which is a high-security facility in Preston County, West Virginia. His projected release date is October 10th, 2072. Next up, Freddie DeNome. He ended up turning witness after thinking DeMeo killed his brother Richie, which, uh, you know, more than likely did happen. Freddie DeNome, he committed suicide in 1986. Now, here's an article from the New York Times written by Ronald Smothers, February 19th, 1986. A key witness in the federal trial in Manhattan of reputed members of the Gambino crime family has been found dead in San Antonio, and the medical examiner there said yesterday that the man had hanged himself. The witness, 45-year-old Frederick DeNome, was found dead last Wednesday. He had been relocated to Texas and given a new identity as part of the Federal Witness Protection Program. Mr. DeNome, an admitted car thief, was awaiting sentencing for his role in seven murders. He testified last month in the trial of eight men accused of operating an international car theft ring that started in Mr. DeNome's garage and committing five murders in which he admitted playing a role. Information from Mr. DeNome was expected to figure in at least four future trials of reputed Gambino family members on charges of extortion, loan sharking, drug trafficking, murder, conspiracy, and racketeering. In San Antonio, Sheriff Harlan Copeland said he never suspected foul play in Mr. DeNome's death. 
but he said he had kept his investigation open for nearly a week while he sought the arrest of three men believed to have stolen the victim's money and jewelry after finding him dead in the two-bedroom home he had rented. The sheriff said the men had told him that Mr. Denome had left a suicide note addressed to his wife and children, but investigators have yet to find it. Mr. Denome testified last month that he could neither read nor write. He said Mr. Denome, who was found hanged from a canopy of a waterbed, had been living in the city since last June under the name Fred Marino. Mr. Denome's testimony last month gave clues to his value as a witness. For one thing, he was a survivor in a ring that prosecutors maintain murdered at least eight of its own members, including Mr. Denome's brother Richard. You know, there's that. Sorry to read you a long news article, but it was it added a lot of context to what happened, you know, with Freddie Denome. Next up on the list, Anthony Center and Joseph Testa. After the murder of Roy DeMeo, which Center and Testa more than likely participated in, Center and Testa drifted into the Lucchese crime family, according to former Lucchese Consigliere, hope I said that right, Anthony Casso, on June 13, 1986, they were responsible for the murder of a Russian-American gangster named Vladimir Reznikov. Reznikov had reportedly threatened the life and family of Marat Balagula, a Ukrainian immigrant who ruled the Russian mafia in Brighton Beach, Balagula, who was masterminding a multi-million dollar gasoline bootlegging operation, had been paying tribute to the five families who regarded him as their biggest moneymaker after drug trafficking. On September 14, 1989, Anthony Center and Joseph Testa were sentenced to life imprisonment. Center continues to serve his life sentence at the United States Penitentiary in Allenwood, West Virginia. Testa is currently serving his life sentence at FCI Terminal Island in San Pedro, California for crimes that include multiple murders, and he now has a release date of 10-23-2032. Now, probably the most interesting of the DeMeo crew, Dominic Montiglio. You've heard me mention his name more than once over the course of these two episodes. Let's get into this guy, because there's a lot going on with him. By 1979, Dominic was heavily addicted to cocaine and also suffered from a drinking problem. He was accused by an associate of stealing money from his uncle Nino, and he was also openly accused of dealing and being addicted to heroin. These accusations were brought up to Paul Castellano, who was still the boss of the Gambino family at the time, and as we all know, the penalty for dealing drugs, especially heroin, was death under Castellano's rule. After a meeting between Paul Castellano and the accuser's father, a made member of another mafia family, Dominic was informed by his uncle Nino that Castellano had taken his side for the time being and had not believed the claims that Dominic sold heroin. In a second meeting where Dominic and his accuser would both be present, was scheduled for a day in December 1979. Dominic's uncle Nino and Roy DeMeo were going to drive him to the location. 
By the time the day for the meeting arrived, Dominic was paranoid as fuck. He's on drugs and alcohol, and he believed that his death had already been ordered and that his uncle and Roy were planning to kill him if he were uh, to go with them to the meeting. He decided to flee to California with his wife and children, where he stayed until 1983. While away in California, his uncle Nino falsely claimed to his associates that Dominic had robbed him of a large large sum of money and then fled, presumably out of embarrassment for his nephew's actions. Dominic bought an expensive house in an upscale California neighborhood and supported himself and his family through drug deals and at times serving as a bodyguard and enforcer for other drug dealers. He was arrested after a botched armed robbery attempt he ended up being released after his wife provided him with an alibi. Now, by 1983, Dominic flies back to New York City for a drug deal with an old associate. After arriving and being informed by the associate that the drug deal had fallen through, he attempted to collect an old loan he was owed. He had his associate meet with the man who owed the money and told the associate to use Roy DeMeo's name to scare the man into paying. Because Dominic Montiglio did not know that Roy had been murdered in January earlier that year. The extortion victim immediately went to the police and offered to wear a wire, then met with Dominic to pay some of his loan back. Dominic was arrested on the scene by officers working with a combined federal and state task force that had been investigating his uncle, Nino Gaggi, and Roy DeMeo's crew since 1981. Facing a minimum of 20 years imprisonment for his extortion arrest and additional crimes he had been accused of by associates of the DeMeo crew that had already become cooperating witnesses for the government, including the man whose accusations of drug dealing had originally led to Dominic fleeing New York. He became a cooperator as well in hopes of drastically reducing his sentence. Dominic provided a great deal of information to the task force, including details of his uncle paying tribute to Gambino boss Paul Castellano with portions of the earnings given to him by Roy DeMeo. He also provided the task force with information on a number of murders committed by Roy DeMeo and his followers. This gave the authorities evidence linking Paul Castellano to the DeMeo crew. The Gaggi task force was then upgraded to the Castellano task force. In early 1984, the indictment was ready for the 24 members or associates of the Gambino family and DeMeo crew, including the boss, Paul Castellano, and also including his uncle Nino Gaggi, both of which were arrested. Dominic testified in both of the trials against the DeMeo crew. His testimony helped lead to the guilty verdicts of every single defendant in the trial. After the trials were over, he was sentenced for his crime and given five years probation instead of time in prison due to his cooperation with the government. Shortly after the 1989 conclusion of the DeMeo crew trials, he worked with crime reporters and authors Jerry Capeshi and Gene Mustaine on their book Murder Machine, which focused primarily on the reign of the DeMeo crew. Montiglio entered the witness protection program and was moved to 12 different locations 
kicked off and reinstated four times. He had 21 different names in that time and testified in three federal trials. One of those trials was was the longest in U.S. history, where he was on the stand for 13 days. He had to confess to his own crimes, leading one homicide detective to say, quote, this guy was a one-man crime wave, end quote. He left the Witness Protection Program about 20 years ago and returned to Brooklyn to become an artist. In the following years, after Murder Machine, the book was published, Dominic Montiglio appeared on television documentaries about organized crime. Uh, on one program, he spoke of his uncle Nino and the DeMeo crew, as well as his experience testifying in the trials against them. Um, he you know, appeared on various documentaries and uh, did interviews with various websites and news programs. So that is the story, that is Dominic Montiglio, like a whole fucking line story of shit up until now. Dude's still alive too, by the way. Um, Next up on the list, Nino Gaggi, what happened to Nino? On February 25th of that year, Gaggi was indicted on multiple charges of racketeering and murder. Castellano was indicted the next month after. The court decided to split the numerous charges against both men into two trials. The first trial would be dealing with the auto theft operation and five related murders. The first trial began in October 1985 and saw testimony from Vito Arena, Frederick Denome, and Dominic Montiglio. Now on December 16, 1985, midway through the trial, Paul Castellano was shot to death in front of Sparks Steakhouse in Manhattan on the orders of Capo John Gotti. With Castellano's death, Gotti became the lead defendant in the first trial. There was some speculation about Gaggi um, being the new Gambino boss. Gotti quickly assumed control of the family, though. In March 1986, Gaji was convicted of conspiracy to sell stolen cars and was sentenced to five years in Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary. In 1988, two years into the sentence, Nino was transferred from Lewisburg to the Metropolitan Correctional Center in New York City for his second trial. Uh, the second trial would focus on Gaji's racketeering acts and on 25 murders allegedly committed by the DeMeo crew. On uh, the day of April 17, 1988, Gaji was told a guard that he was suffering from chest pains. However, the guard did nothing. Later that day, Gaji suffered a major heart attack and was not transported to a hospital for several hours. Gaji died in the hospital later that day. Now, it's thought that Gaji more than likely would have survived his heart attack if he had been sent to the hospital sooner. Gaji's wife successfully sued the prison system for negligence. Assisted by testimony from several other inmates, Gaji's death actually sparked a controversy that eventually resulted in better medical conditions in New York City prisons. So... That is the end of Roy DeMeo, the death of Roy DeMeo, and the, you know, rest of the DeMeo crew and what happened to all those guys. So, yeah, that was a fucking whole lot of information for, you know, being about an hour or so. Oh, man. Anywho, with all that behind us, 
If you want to nominate me for a podcast award, go to podcastawards.com. You can put me in the people's choice. You can put me in the society and culture section, whatever section you want to put me in. Just throw me a nomination. It'd be pretty cool of you. Uh, as for social media, how to get a hold of me, I am on Facebook. Stop by, like the Facebook page. Stop by, uh, come and join the group if you want. Just answer the damn questions or you're not going to get in there. Um, what else? Uh, Instagram, uh, at mysterious underscore podcast. You can find me there or you can follow my personal account, which is at burn it all 13. Oh, where else? Twitter. I'm on Twitter. It's at podcast MC. Follow me on there. Uh, you know, whatever's clever. Uh, if not, then just keep on listening. Till next time, see you folks on the flip side. Alright, let's go ahead and read some reviews. Alright, first off we got from America, the notorious Nikki T as Strictly Homicide. Five stars, great show and great host. Justin is very good at what he does. He is a uh, big ball of knowledge, and he is nice enough to share it through a show. I look forward to new episodes before it even drops, and no one talks about history like Justin. For those of you who have not listened to Strictly Homicide, I highly suggest it. Nikki T is amazing. She is a super awesome person. Please, please go check out her show. Uh, you're, you're definitely going to like it. And like I said, she's an amazing, amazing human being. So that right there counts for a lot in my book, to be perfectly honest with you. So go check out her podcast. You will uh, more than likely enjoy it. Next one we got T-Dog, 5150, five stars. Love the show. As an aspiring podcaster, you're one of my favorite influence. I tell you what, first of all, I love the 5150 reference. <laughs> Not many people get that, but I get it. <laughs> but hey, man, like, well, if this is a man, I really don't know. Woman, man, either way, uh, if you want some help getting your podcast going, I have helped several podcasts get started. I still help people when they ask for it. Just get a hold of me and I'll help you. I can guide you along the right routes and the right channels, tell you the best prices on host sites and how to go about it. So if you want, go ahead and get a hold of me. Uh, just let me know it's you, obviously. <laughs> so just be like, hey, this is T-Dog. <laughs> but no, seriously, just get a hold of me. I can totally help you out. It's super easy and it's super cheap to start a podcast. I don't care what other podcasters tell you. It's literally cheap as fuck. It's like 20 bucks a month to have a host site. <laughs> That's literally it. Software Audacity is free. Cheap mic, I paid 60 bucks for an ATR2100 fucking dynamic mic, which is what most podcasters use because it's an amazing microphone. Obviously, my microphone I'm using now, not in the first, like, you know, 30-some-odd episodes, but yeah, just get a hold of me. I'll help you out. And thank you very much for leaving that uh, review. Um, Chase PK93, four stars, interesting and informative giving the uh this a cursory four out of five stars because i only just started listening a few days ago i can respect that conversational yes on topic throughout hell freaking yes uh this is certainly a rare find for me it seems like so many other true crime shows go off on too many tangents and uh just get completely derailed and even as conversational as justin and his co-hosts are which you know i can only be so conversational when it's just me doing an episode 
Um, they offer commentary for the subject at hand without losing focus, um, save for the occasional joke. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Conspiracies, murder mysteries, odd histories, everything a curious mind could hope for. Keep up the good work. Chase PK 93 thank you very much. I greatly appreciate that. Very well said, and um, I just, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, next one is Iowa2887, five stars, amazing, great podcast, it's one of uh, my top two, sorry Justin, but it's always a toss up between you and Brohio, <laughs> you know what, I'm not even fucking mad about that, Brohio is one of the few podcasts I listen to as soon as they drop an episode, so I totally, uh, I totally can agree with you there, not even mad about that. Uh, Justin always does in-depth research, has great audio, and always has a great range of topics. It honestly reminds me of when I was in Afghanistan, and we'd sit around and smoke and talk about everything under the sun. Uh, that just gave me chills. I fucking love that, man. I truly, truly do. I don't know if it's a man or a woman, like I said, but that I, I, I love that reference. Um, I love the episodes on Doc Holliday and Wyatt Earp. I grew up close to Pella, Iowa. And never knew that Wyatt Earp lived here. Uh, from one hillbilly to another, please keep up the great work, brother. Hey, you know what? Now that I know this is a guy, <laughs> thank you, brother. And you know what? From one hillbilly to another, I literally have a mason jar of moonshine right here. And I'm just going to do this right here for you. Iowa 2887. Let me pop the cap on this. Oh, oh yeah. You heard that. Ooh, fuck. Thank you very much. From one hillbilly to another, I appreciate that. Next, we have a fabled one-star review. This should be fun. Because I'm actually going to reference uh, a, what, what a bunch of my listeners had to say about this. And for you long-time listeners, you're going to fucking laugh at this shit. And it might make you mad, I don't know. SoCalGrown329. One star, hard pass. I love crime podcasts, and I really tried to give this one a shot. I listened to two episodes out of 107, mind you, and it's just not for me. Along with the tangents and personal opinions about politics that are interjected, <laughs> the storytelling is very scattered. I felt like I was listening to a frat boy who was day drinking, who kept forgetting about what he was talking about mid-conversation. In fact... I believe Justin might have been vaping during one of the episodes. The sound quality isn't great. I think this podcast has potential, but I'm going to pass on future episodes. Well, for you longtime listeners, as you guys know, I have never, ever put my personal politics in any episodes. For two reasons, alright? That's not what this podcast is about. All politicians are fucking crooked as shit, alright? I don't give a fuck what side of the fence you're on. I really don't. My podcast is about paranormal shit, debunking it. it. Really? Like, you literally just stated, like, all the opposite shit that I'm really fucking known for. My storytelling is on fucking point, alright? I'm not trying to be an asshole. Like, obviously, my earlier episodes, I've been doing this since April of 2016, all right, and I know my episodes don't reflect that because I had to change my host site last year. But if you look at the fucking upload dates on most of those episodes, you'll see three or four episodes uploaded each day because I had to fucking upload them all to the new feed. Yeah, 
There ain't nobody out there that makes fucking five hour long fucking podcast episodes a week. Okay. And if they do, they're literally ranting about the dumbest shit or, you know, whatever the fucking case may be. But anyway, so what I do with one star reviews, for those of you who do not know, and you're get anybody's welcome to join my Facebook group. Look for the asterisk, type in Mysterious Circumstances Podcast, hit the group button on, on Facebook, and that's how you fucking get in the group. But please answer the damn questions, otherwise my admin will not let you in. So, we got from Cammy, good friend of mine, politics, question mark, exclamation point. Uh, that's where I call 100% bullshit. Never once have you ever crossed that line. Exactly. Because, no, it's not happening. Vaping? They obviously don't know your opinion on vapes. Ha ha ha. And that was from Whitney. <laughs> I do have a pretty... I'm outspoken about some things more than others. Vaping is one of those things. I will say this, I tried vaping for like a month, and it can be heard of me clicking the button on one of my episodes, but the episode is, is really long. And it's a good, it's a great episode, so I didn't like cut it out. And uh, yeah, vaping was not for me. It definitely was not my thing. Oh, uh, this one's from Tia. You never use politics in anything, and you can clearly tell it's a cigarette. And yeah, like I, with the exception of one month in my fucking life, I smoke good old fashioned cigarettes. Okay. Here's one from Daniel Davis. Speaking of which. <laughs> Politics? Question mark. Never once heard anything about politics in any of the episodes. I am under the impression this person is under the age of 16 or has no clue what politics are. As for a day-drinking frat boy, people get thirsty when they talk. Just because Justin chooses to wet his whistle with a beer or rum and coke is not an issue. He is still coherent. Tangents and opinions help the less informed to try to understand what the world was at the time and that everyone is t entitled to an opinion. And that right there, Daniel Davis, like, killed it with that one. That was a great fucking comment. Abby says, I really want to call this ignorant critic a douche noodle to her face. <laughs> Weston says, this person's family clearly has ignored them their entire lives, and they just want attention. Roseanne, Roseanne from uh, California Dreaming, great friend of mine. I love this woman to death. We've done a few episodes together, and we we got more planned as well. And uh, she says, "WTF? Your show really isn't really true crime for the most part, right? You know, it's not. It's literally about anything that I find interesting or has mysterious circumstances around it." You don't talk politics. Your storytelling is on point. You don't vape. You're not a frat boy. As for the day drinking, well, who gives a shit? <laughs> I fucking love it. I uh, love you, Roseanne. You're awesome. Tina says, We all know Justin has to drink like a frat boy just to deal with the one-star reviews, but politics and vaping, I call bullshit on that. That was from my friend Tina, and this one is from Donna. It says, I don't understand. If you don't like a podcast, just move along. Always a negative Nancy ruining shit. Dana actually has a really good, great one, too. It says, uh, and I don't even know what a podcast is, but apparently others who watch me do. For the love of everything holy, I don't even own a smartphone, nor do I want one. I guess I just know the right people to believe and or follow. Thank you, Justin, for being an advocate of those who cannot advocate for themselves. Thank you. Dana, thank you very much. That honestly means a lot to me. You know, I try. 
I try, you know, and all my episodes aren't as serious as other ones. I'll be the first person to admit that, you know, I like to have fun every now and then, but, uh, but you know, the serious ones, you guys know, you know, when I'm serious about it. So I don't fucking joke around and shit. Uh, Randy Meyer. Oh man, he's been a good, good friend for a long time. I don't know what the hell he was listening to, but you douchebag don't have a clue what you're talking about. Shut the fuck up and move on and get a fucking life troll. <laughs> all I'm saying is I literally have the best fucking listeners on the planet. All right. I don't even have to get savage half the time. <laughs> Keith actually says, can't wait for the roasting this review will get. <laughs> Nathan Walston says, I'm sorry, but which podcast were you referring to? I have listened to all of yours several more than once, and I have never noticed anything remotely similar to any of that occurring. Well, that's because it never did occur. Uh, Laura says, what the fuck? Political views? Question mark. Because it's blatantly not true. Maureen says, all I hear is, I hate boys, I hate boys that drink, I hate boys that drink at frat parties, I must not be a boy. <laughs> well, anyway, that's what my listeners had to say about your dumb shit review, SoCal Grown. And to be honest with you, the sad fact is, I actually used to live in SoCal. I lived uh, in an area what is referred to as Tri-City. I lived right on the, uh, the Vista Oceanside line, right across in Vista. I used to uh, travel around Carlsbad, Oceanside, and Vista quite frequently, uh, especially o Oceanside. I loved Oceanside. Um, he here's the deal. You are literally giving SoCal a bad name right now. I'm sure all the SoCal listeners will appreciate that bullshit. But, uh, but yeah, anyway, you're a fucking idiot, SoCal grown. What else we got here? Here we go. Uh, Earl's Road, four out of five stars, says old folks. And this is referring to um, a review I read on two episodes ago at the end of Shadow People. It says, you must be doing something right since I keep coming back. Listening to reviews today, somebody mentioned something about you calling 60-year-old folks old. <laughs> that gets a big F you from this 63-year-old. I ain't old, just experienced. Hey, you know what, Earl's Road? I fucking love that right there, man. That is awesome. He put a smiley face on there, man. You know what? I'll, ta I'll take that. I'll take that all day, man. And in, in, in all fairness, though, in all fairness, both my parents are 60-year-olds. Uh, my grandparents are 83 now. I'm personally 38, and I call myself old. So don't feel bad about any of that. Oh, here we go. This one's actually really good, too. Mrs. Scally. He dismisses scientific evidence. This is really going to piss you guys off. This is a one-star, okay? Says, not a fan. He dismisses scientific evidence and doesn't offer any reasonable explanations to paranormal phenomenon, even when it is available. He also doesn't offer solid evidence for his theories when doing true crime podcasts. I was psyched after reading the reviews, but this podcast did not live up to the hype. Well, Mrs. Scally, here's the deal with that. First of all, paranormal episodes. Let's go down the line here, and I'm not going to name all of them. Scenith uh, uh, Ghost Lights. Um, I provided a fuckload of scientific evidence, which still is still unproven. So, you know, there's that. It was literally like an hour 
long episode and probably half hour of it was fucking scientific evidence. Uh, let's see, we got, uh, the Donnie Decker episode. I provided scientific evidence there as well. Most of that scientific evidence still does not prove, uh, what several, several witnesses, you know, saw and the fact that, uh, those several witnesses were uniformed law enforcement officers. So there's that. Uh, you can attack their character all you want if that's part of your scientific, uh, you know, your scientific debate but at the end of the day that one's very hard to uh to disprove uh let's see what else we got uh maurice therio the demonic possession of maurice therio that literally is me debunking that with psychology uh there's a good half hour span in there where i get really deep into the psychology of a disassociative identity disorder so if you haven't heard that you know pull your head out of your fucking ass and give that a listen so you at least know what the fuck you're talking about uh let's see uh, i just released a shadow person episode that is literally nothing but scientific evidence i honestly was scared to release that episode for my paranormal listeners because i have listeners who are paranormal i have listeners who are true crime i have listeners who are into history so my i honestly and anybody who was at the indianapolis live show at the after party with me i was sitting there getting drunk like i'm so fucking scared to put out this episode because the paranormal people are gonna hate me because there's so much fucking science in it that episode was mostly science so there's where you're fucking stupid again like anyway so, you know, uh, uh, theories with unsolved cases, all right? Unsolved cases are maybe, maybe like 50% of my entire catalog, okay? The deal with that is there are some that I provide some theories. Like, personally, if I feel very strongly about a theory, I will be vocal about it. But at the same time, that's not my job to think for you, all right? Now, I understand you're probably on autopilot, Mrs. Scally. You know, and I can, I can appreciate that. I would love to be that way as well. But at some point in time, all right, I'm not sure how old you are or whether your husband just literally, you know, does everything or, and thinks for you. Like, I don't understand that because you're obviously a missus. It says right here. At some point in time, you have to realize that it's my job to provide you with all of the information from all sides of the story not lose my objectivity while I'm doing that. And then it's your job <clears throat> to formulate these theories. It's your job to think. Like, I know that sounds fucking hard. And I know in today's world, especially with social media the way it is. And, you know, you have the TV telling you all this shit that you should probably be thinking. Like, at some point in time, you have to think for yourself. And I know that's a hard concept to grasp. It's painful sometimes, you know, but just bear with me, okay, and use your brain for a fucking second, and yes, I am patronizing the fuck out of you right now, okay, because bless your fucking heart, if you honestly think I'm going to sit here and fucking provide you with my fucking personal theories, you're out of your fucking mind, okay, all the theories that I present are theories that are fucking common, uh, they go from least probable to probable when I do provide theories every now and then I do provide, you know, my personal opinion on a theory, which I actually do on my YouTube channel, you know, check it out. I do like after shows and stuff like that on there where I give my personal opinion. But at the end of the day, honey, please, 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 please. 
if it, it's cool if you don't think for yourself, but at least raise your children if you have any to think for themselves. Because, duh. You know, duh. All right, here we go with the next one. Five stars, Justin Rocks. Listen to several podcasts from Justin, and this is from Justice for DJ 88. I know exactly who this is. She's my good friend, Amanda. Um, he keeps my attention. Uh, he keeps my attention and I always, uh, I always leave learning something new that I didn't know before, even though I enjoy listening to his podcast and I've been happily married for 20 years. I'd much rather have a YouTube, him have a YouTube channel. He's really nice to look at. Keep it awesome, Justin. Well, thank you very much, uh, Amanda, but I do have a YouTube channel and, you know, looking at me sometimes, some days is better than others. You know, I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. All right, what do we got next here? Uh, we are going to the UK. Haley, 81, five stars. Love your show. Been listening to you for a few years now and uh, absolutely love your show. Love your topics, the way you tell your stories, and of course, your swearing. <laughs> Look forward to more amazing shows, uh, Haley from the UK, and um, I'm not 100% sure how to pronounce your last name, We the, the PH over here in American English, you know, sometimes is uh, pronounced like an F, so it's either Mepham or Mepham, um, but either way, Haley from the UK, you're fucking awesome, alright, I'm just gonna let you know that right now, you are fucking awesome, and we're friends now, and you didn't even know it. So, you know, there's that. All right, let's let's scroll and see what we can come up with here. All right, Australia. Do we have anything new from Australia? No, we do not. Do we have anything new from Canada? Oh, Canada. Pretty sure we don't. Oh, yeah, fuck yeah, we do. Crazy 19 girl 69. Five stars. Keep up the good work. I listen to a lot of podcasts and I rarely comment, but I do rate them. I listen to them at work, driving, cleaning my house, and walking my dog. I just finished listening to your episode of Shadow People. It was awesome. Your responses to the people who reviewed you made me laugh out loud a few times. Great work. Don't change a thing. I tell you, Crazy 19 Girl 69, you're fucking awesome and you don't change a thing either. That's all. You know, what else can I say about that? You're fucking awesome. I hope you have an awesome... I bet your dog's even awesome, you know? So, next, I do have to... Uh, there was somebody who emailed me who uh, couldn't get uh, their review. They they so they go through Podcast Addict, which is actually the, uh, the app that I go through as well. And they said that they could not... You know, they couldn't leave a review on there. So they sent me an email. I said, dude, it's all the same. Just send me send me the review and I'll, I'll be more than happy to read it. So he uh, sent me an email. His, his name is Harry. He's from the UK. And he says, Dear Justin, I listen to my podcast through an app called Podcast Addict. And for the life of me, can't seem to leave a review. I would happily give you five stars, maybe even six if I could. Uh, I find your voice quite soothing, and the content is is exactly what I'm after. I just wanted to let you know, one way or the other, can't wait to hear more. Hashtag keep smashing it. Hashtag UK listener. Yours sincerely, Harry. I tell you what, Harry, you are fucking awesome, and I can't even thank you enough, because at the end of the day, you know, whether it's through an email or whatever... 
dude, it's, it, it's what keeps us podcasters going to be perfectly honest with you. So thank you very, very much. And I do want to say, uh, hello to Serena as well. She sent me an email about uh, the Terra Calico, f- uh, picture, which is an episode that I covered, God, probably like two and a half years ago, but she was actually very, very nice. And she, uh, uh, she was nice enough to tell me a very creepy ass story involving her, her mother as well, which was, <laughs> it was awesome, but, but definitely creepy. So, um, Serena, thank you very much for, for taking the time to, to send that email as well. I appreciate it. And as for reviews, uh, I believe that is it. I saw a couple reviews on Stitcher. Now here's the deal. Stitcher doesn't show up like on any of my stuff. So every now and then when I'm scrolling like through Google search or whatever, and I see it on Stitcher and then I see like there's a different number of reviews, uh, I'll read them. I do have a few reviews to read from there. I'm going to screenshot those and read them on the next episode. So I do apologize for the people who have left reviews on Stitcher. Some of one of them's from like a year ago too. So I apologize. I, I don't have Stitcher and they don't provide us with, you know, our reviews or anything like that. So now that that's out of the way, see you guys later.